This SCCM iCritical Care podcast is sponsored by the Medical Science Liaison Division of Bard Medical, where science meets education. We are dedicated to targeted temperature management and bringing academia from around the world to deliver great expertise and proven knowledge base for future global advancements. So hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein, recording here from Puerto Rico at the 2000. 13 Annual Congress. Joining us today is Philip E. Empey, PharmD, PhD, BCPS, Assistant Professor of Pharmacy and Therapeutics at the University of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. Dr. Empey is with us to discuss his Young Investigator Award winning abstract entitled, Phenytoin Concentrations Are Elevated in Children Receiving Therapeutic Hypothermia Following Traumatic Brain Injury. Thank you so much for joining us uh, here today, Dr. Empey. Thank you. So thanks again once again for joining us. Uh, love to hear a little bit more about your background, um, what, uh, what you've been doing with yourself, and uh, how uh, leading up to this particular trial. Certainly. Uh, thanks again for having me. Uh, so I'm a, a pharmacist, and I was trained in pharmacy and went on and did clinical residencies. Uh, but then took sort of a unique path and went on and um, obtained a, a PhD in the clinical pharmacology. So my work is focused on understanding the mechanisms of variation in drug response. And in critical care, there's a, there's a whole bunch of them. Uh, so this particular abstract presentation was focused on sort of understanding how a new uh, therapy can be applied and could impact drug therapy. Great. And, and you've done similar work to this in the past? I have. So uh, my work is focused in pharmacokinetics, so understanding the relationships between drug dose and concentration and how that ends up correlating the drug response. Uh, so I've focused on understanding what's going on with traumatic brain injury and how that disease state impacts things like cyclosporine clearance. We've done some work like that in the past. Uh, but we really had an opportunity to pursue what was going on with hypothermia because it was sort of one of these uh, therapies that was applied much later than when all the drugs were approved. So if we think about it, we do these safety analyses uh, prior to approval in, in basically all countries. But when you add a new therapy or something else that could impact uh, drugs after the fact, it sort of uh, blows those concentration relationships um, out of the water. We really don't have a, a sense for how those things uh, still hold true. Yeah, it, it, reading this and then listening to you once again, it makes me... Uh really concerned <laughs> about all the different things we do that probably almost most definitely influence drug pharmacokinetics and we probably don't know a whole lot about a lot of drugs we're giving in different clinical situations. Yeah, I think it's a very fertile area to look at for research and uh, make sure we're optimizing all therapies, drugs and non-drug. Yeah, good point. And uh, you were saying earlier, so you are um, Really, at this point uh, in your career, at least, uh, primarily a researcher. You're not um, one of the uh, pharmacists that many, many of us in critical care are familiar with that are here at the bedside helping us uh, on rounds and on daily uh, management of uh, pharmacotherapeutics. Yeah, not currently. Certainly, I was, I was trained that way, and many pharmacists practice in that, in that uh, along with teams in terms of providing clinical care. Uh, but my background is such that really focused more towards research and was able to get some funding to allow me to dedicate my time on that. And perhaps then you can take us through the evolution of this particular trial and actually looking um, at therapeutic hypothermia in, in children. 
uh, and uh, what came together to allow for this trial to take place? Sure. Well, there's been some of us at the University of Pittsburgh really focused on understanding what's been going on with medications. Uh, we've done some preclinical work in animal models looking to see how hypothermia could impact drug therapy of a variety of drugs. So myself and, and team members in Sam Poliak at the School of Pharmacy um, and Pat Kohanek at, in the School of Medicine are really focused on trying to understand what's been going on with this interplay. So we've looked at uh, preclinical models in cardiac arrest in rats as well as healthy volunteer studies where we could lower the body temperature down and see how it impacts drug metabolism. So really when we had the opportunity to gather data from this clinical trial, which uh, University of Pittsburgh was one of the leading centers at, uh, this is sort of rare to get randomized controlled trial, uh, well-controlled uh, data. The other thing that's nice is phenytoin is a drug that's used very, very frequently, both in this pediatric population as well as others that received hypothermia. So we really had the combination of a very well-designed study, patients that were receiving phenytoin for seizure prophylaxis anyway, and then a, a large number of clinical levels are obtained to try to optimize that therapy anyway. So well-controlled study, wonderful numbers of levels, all the drug dosing and everything really sets us up to be able to understand the relationships between drug and concentration. Uh, so the, uh, the trial um, was a prospective randomized trial of hypothermia versus no hypothermia in children with traumatic brain injury? It was. It was the Pediatric Traumatic Brain Injury Consortium of the Cool Kids trial uh, that just recently completed. It was multi-center but our trial, our center enrolled uh, quite a few patients and provided an opportunity just to look st starting at our center to see uh, what was going on in our own patients. Uh, but I think as critical care is moving forward and we have a lot more of these large studies, we really do have the opportunity to get levels from multiple sites um, and pull in, especially when there are levels obtained as part of critical care, our clinical care, we can just sort of collect those levels and understand what's going on with drugs. And so the, um, the subjects that you evaluated were from the overall trial or the ones at the University of Pittsburgh? So they were all enrolled in the trial, uh, but they were all at our center. Uh, we had the best access to uh, that data. Mm -hmm. We certainly could get sure. data through the whole trial, but uh, we started off with those patients to look for the response, and we were able to find relationships just in the small numbers of patients we had at our institution. So can you take us through the, some of the findings that, that, um, that you identified? Certainly. So the first thing we did is, is try to get an understanding about whether um, concentrations were just elevated by looking at them. Um, and if you think about it, it's sort of challenging because, you know, patients are receiving different doses based on the levels that come back. So as part of clinical care, dosing is changing, levels are changing, uh, the therapy and the, the course of the disease or the injury is changing in patients. So as a crude analysis, we just sort of compared in different treatment periods, during the cooling period, later during rewarming and then after treatment to see what the levels were and to see if either dose or, or levels change in the two patient groups. So these patients were randomized to either 32, 33 degree hypothermia for 48 hours or controlled normal thermia, uh, keeping them right around 37, 38 degrees, um, excuse me, 37 degrees, and then a very, very slow rewarming. So a degree every 12 to 24 hours and then a post-therapy period. So we started off by doing very simple statistics and seeing whether there were any differences in group. We saw a very, a very strong trend. It was a 0.051, I think, in terms of whether there was a temperature effect on uh, levels, especially within the rewarming periods and the post-treatment periods. So this immediately piqued our interest because you think, well, patients are cooled, 
what's different during cooling. In this situation, it wasn't during the cooling itself, it was much later. So you imagine you come in on a Monday morning, you're looking at a particular patient that perhaps was cooled over the weekend, all the levels are normal again. And you, you don't think to look back and say, well, what are the ongoing perhaps uh, perturbations between dose and uh, concentration that may be left over from that therapy? So we took those levels and then we were able to tr apply um, a very nice modeling technique in pharmacokinetics. We use nonlinear mixed effects modeling to really look at, the, uh, be able to take advantage of the unbalanced nature of these trials. So you can't say that every patient got the same number of levels or every patient got the same number of doses. So this is a really nice approach to be able to take into account that unbalanced nature and look at specific fixed effects like temperature for a population but also account for the interpatient variability. So we can see how the patients differ as well as the populations. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you before you explain that maybe just in a few more details, the um, anti-seizure prophylaxis, mm -hmm. was that uh, prescribed according to the trial or was that based on clinical? It was protocol? clinical protocol. So in our institution nearly all patients receive phosphenitoin, sort of a standard 20 milligrams per kilo load uh, and then a 5 to 7 divided uh, milligrams per kilo divided twice a day. Um, certainly other institutions may use other drugs, but I think phenytoin is probably one of the major uh, implied drugs. And levels were checked at prescribed intervals? Nope, or? just as part of regular clinical care. So again, in a typical study when you're not thinking about doing pharmacokinetics, ha things happen whenever they need to happen. Mm -hmm. So again, the, the modeling approach we use really could take advantage of that. Um, and maybe some patients may have gotten 15 levels, some may have gotten 3. So that sparse sampling or very robust sampling could be taken advantage of in looking at the modeling as opposed to doing sort of standard group analyses. Can you um, help us understand about exactly how that works? How do you, I mean, it sounds so like, like messy data and yes. you're going to organize yeah, it somehow. It's, yeah, so it's not, it's not magic. I mean, basically, <laughs> we, um, we, the relationships between dose and concentration for phenytoin in particular have been, are known. Um, so there are pharmacokinetic models that can relate the two based on drug metabolism. So we're basically able to take that model and apply it to the levels and see how well the model predicts things. And then essentially add back in individual covariates to see which covariate um, is, explains additional amounts of the data. Um, once we identify the covariates, in this case temperature was one of them, as well as age, weight, and several other covariates, uh, we find the ones that are significant and then we add them to the model. Um, and then we basically build a full model. And once the full model is developed, it's tested by you know, backward subtraction of the individual variables. Um, and then we essentially um, see how robust the model is by adding some variability and see how well it holds up. And in this particular case, because of the number of patient levels we had, we had a very large number of patient levels, even though we only had 19 patients total. Um, we were able to get a very good model prediction and able to actually measure the, both the free levels and the total levels in the same model. Um, and as free levels correlate uh, best with activity and toxicity, we looked at how those levels would compare relative to sort of known established ranges for phenytoin. I see. And so what did you find? So in this, so we found it really interesting that um, more patients that were in the cooled group um, had higher levels uh, as later on in the study periods, as I mentioned. But looking back at mechanistically, we, that individual model can tell us where the temperature impacts, you know, what variable. And we found that metabolism, in this case elimination of phenytoin, that maximal capacity of the ability to clear the drug was decreased, about 50% overall. 
So that's important for phenytoin in particular because it has nonlinear elimination. So as dose goes up, you don't expect double the dose to get double the concentration. At some point, it becomes very nonlinear and double the dose may get three, four, five-fold the concentration. So when you get a drug with a very narrow therapeutic range, nonlinear range, and you get pretty significant changes in elimination, you start being very concerned about how this impacts levels. Um, so again, we saw a 50% drop in elimination of the drug um, with the four degree drop in temperature. So that's an overall 50% during hypothermia, and that, because of the long half-life with phenytoin, really caused the levels to be persistently elevated for a very long period of time after the initial cooling period. So levels were elevated for you know, during rewarming as well as post-treatment. We get the pharmacokinetic model developed and we're able to actually simulate afterwards and see how long would that persist for. And in some cases, up to eight days at the end of cooling. We still had a, a separation between patients that were cooled and patients that were cooled. So we would suggest to clinicians, we can't say that this is directly gonna cause toxicity, but we would suggest to clinicians just to look for different relationships and unexpected results because hypotension um, is a known side effect for phenytoin, specifically more with a phenytoin product than phosphenytoin. Uh, but it's been reported with phosphenytoin as well. And if you're trying to think of optimizing care for your patients, especially adding something like hypothermia, where hypotension also occurs from the cooling itself, then it gets to be a challenging interplay, whether you're just a, a side effect of the drug or the medication. And if you think about it, uh, where hypothermia is being employed in larger clinical trials, you know, it works very well for perineal asphyxia um, in the hospital cardiac arrest, but where hasn't it worked? It's happened, uh, we've had very difficult time showing efficacy in traumatic brain injury in this population. So although we certainly can't say this, it's very provocative to think about whether differences in treatment outcome uh, from something like hypothermia may be due to not only just the application of hypothermia itself during the treatment, but also interplay with medications. And perhaps better knowledge of that and better dosing could optimize those outcomes. That's interesting, really. Um the implications are really far-reaching as you describe them. Are there uh, other well-studied um, uh, medications in hypothermia? So the strongest data is with uh, drugs that are metabolized by cytochrome P450. Uh, so we've had we've done previous work with um, midazolam, uh, particularly in healthy volunteers, and we know that that uh, metabolism goes down as a direct result of cooling. Others have done work with vecuronium. And there is other data with phenytoin as well. And there was a study specifically in pediatrics looking at, at morphine in patients with HIE um, that had higher levels uh, right after administering that drug as well. So sort of to guide clinicians, I we would say at least at this point, any drug that appears to be metabolized has obviously been a known relationship between temperature and, and enzymatic activity. It's been known for 100 years. Um, so we would certainly focus on drugs that are metabolized. And we would look to those to say, if you've got a drug that's metabolized um, and has a very long half-life, for example, you really have a, a setup for a potential for accumulation of the drug. And so I, I guess how significant is the actual temperature change? So it, it, it has, has this been studied at the molecular level with cytochrome P450? Is there um, a direct correlation with temperature and metabolism, or is it um, um, kind of a little bit more gray than that? 
So we've, we've done a little bit of work. The short answer is uh, it appears to be a direct relationship of temperature. Um, the studies I've looked at sort of trying to quantify with that have seen about a 10 to 15 percent drop per degree in temperature, which the results that we encountered in this study would sort of be in that same range. Um, so in that sense, it's probably predictable. Um, but the other sense of this is there's also injury-related effects on those same enzymes. So we know, for example, in traumatic brain injury, um, that there's an induction in metabolism that occurs from the injury itself. Now, in other disease states, we have uh, preclinical data that suggests in something like hypothermia and cardiac arrest, the opposite happens, and the cardiac arrest itself may actually inhibit some of the metabolism of the drugs as well. So you start layering on hypothermia on top of either one of those conditions, and you can sort of have a, a, a additive effect or sort of so much that would reverse the effect. So in traumatic brain injury, the modeling suggested that the hyperthermia partially reversed that induction that occurs during traumatic brain injury. Uh, but in other disease states, we won't know. We can pretty much, it's safe to say molecularly that there is a direct effect in the test tube with enzymatic reactions we've tested and we've seen the enzyme metabolism go down independent of an animal or human or whatever. So we can say there's definitely a direct effect. But whether there's also an, an effect of hyperthermia on, say, cytokine release, which goes on and, and affects you know, metabolism and enzyme expression and direct effects, uh, we're still learning those things. Well, so, so, I mean, to get back to your previous statements, it, it, it really is complex. So therapeutic hyperthermia may have different effects in different disease processes based on the disease processes, mm -hmm. effects on metabolism and perhaps other things, as well as, as on the types of medications we use for different diseases, um, which hypothermia may have a direct, does have a direct effect on the metabolism of those drugs and may alter the outcomes. Uh, it really adds a very complex layer to those types of trials and trying to figure out where is the benefit, where is the lack of benefit um, in a given disease process. Yeah, it does. And so what we would suggest is, um, you know, for metabolism and drugs that are cleared by P450 specifically, we would look to those as being ones you probably want to watch. Um, there's been less data and there's probably more guidance, uh, I shouldn't say less data, there's been more clear data with perhaps drugs that are really cleared. Uh, or drugs that are um, don't go through any type of active processes for removal, those things don't seem to change as much. So to provide some guidance, you know, the drugs that are very short half-life drugs and perhaps renally clear, perhaps we can worry less about those. Uh, but drugs that are already have complex dose-response relationships in those situations, longer half-life, um, complicated uh, clinical conditions, obviously makes dosing much more challenging. But what we would really suggest is if anyone that's doing large clinical trials, especially with its already levels being obtained clinically, why not look at that data? Um, clinical trials are so sparse, especially in pediatrics, it makes it very, very challenging to do one specifically for kinetics. So this modeling has really taught us that, you know, with appropriate analytical techniques um, and the data in a good quality clinical trial, we can learn something about what's going on and optimize these therapies. So we'd hope to be able to use this uh, more frequently whenever that type of data is available to analyze. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's a great way to approach this type of research. As I, as I hear the, and we speak about the outcomes of different trials, uh, I imagine the audience would love to know the outcome of uh, the primary trial, and I don't know if that's been published yet. It's been published in abstract form. Okay. Um, so it was published in neurotrauma last year in abstract form, and it was not effective. As prim it failed its primary outcome, similar to the previous trials for um, intraumatic brain injury. 
then I think it's it's just a different condition. Yeah. Um, and there are other things optimized, and particularly the adverse events from the previous trials suggested the hypotension um, in you know lower CPP might have been partially to blame. We don't think we know. I think it's a much more heterogeneous disease than others, and it's because of that it's harder to understand timing and depth of um, hyperthermia and those things. So, but regardless of the long-term you know, usage for this condition, it's obviously in traumatic brain injury and the work could be criticized because this may not be a therapy for traumatic brain injury moving forward. Um, we think it's applicable to other diseases and other any other disease states. And um, specifically when multiple medications are, are being employed, we should really start thinking about, you know, what are we doing to our patients? They certainly need the medications, uh, but some drugs are going to be more complicated to dose in that sort of polypharmacy. We're so um, focused on trying to identify adverse drug reactions, and it's sometimes it's challenging in patients when when they're cooled. Great. Well, thank thank you so much, and, and again, once again, congratulations. Thank you on uh, winning the Young Investigator Award this year, uh, and we certainly look forward to uh, future work from your group uh, and uh, with much interest. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, this concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care podcast. Thank you for listening, and please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. This SCCM iCritical Care podcast is sponsored by the Medical Science Liaison Division of Bard Medical, where science meets education. We are dedicated to targeted temperature management and bringing academia from around the world to deliver great expertise and proven knowledge base for future global advancements. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCP, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is associate professor of surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is director of the Surgical ICU and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit, medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. This SCCM iCritical Care podcast is sponsored by the Medical Science Liaison Division of Bard Medical, where science meets education. We are dedicated to targeted temperature management and bringing academia from around the world to deliver great expertise and proven knowledge base for future global advancements.